Morning. Good to see you all here and glad you uh, made it through the treacherous snowstorm that's taking place outside. <laughs> Although it may be on its way. I heard, I heard uh, some places throughout the region are getting hit a little bit harder. Uh, and for those of you joining us online, thanks for joining us. It's, it's good to get to get in the word together with you as well. And uh, a couple quick announcements before we do that. This coming Saturday is our next youth event. And uh, so students in um, 6th through 12th grade, or I'm sorry, 7th through 12th grade uh, are welcome to come to the Weibles for a game night. And if you'd like more information on that, please talk to Marty or talk to me if you don't know who Marty is and I'll get you in touch with him. But that's this Saturday at 5 p.m. They're going to get together and uh, enjoy some time together. Uh, and then uh, also thank you to everybody who was able to come out Thursday evening, as Dana just mentioned, it was really, really cool to be in the building worshiping together. Uh, it's great to worship anywhere, but there was something unique uh, about this step in Redemption Church's journey where God has given us this great opportunity to get into this building uh, and to get to, to worship there together was really something special. So I look forward to many more of those opportunities. Lord willing, starting Easter Sunday, we'll be there every Sunday. Uh, but there's a lot of work between now and then. And, uh, but it's progressing well and things are coming together well. One of the things I mentioned Thursday night uh, that I want to repeat this morning for those of you who weren't there and, and those of you who are listening online. Uh, so we, we set out from the beginning when we purchased this building with a goal of raising $150,000 uh, to complete the renovations and to get into that to get into the building and begin using it. Uh, but also part of that is uh, to get this building, we had to get a bridge loan, which is a temporary loan uh, that we got um, through somebody very generous at very favorable terms, but meant to be a short-term loan. And the reason we had to do that was just because of the, the life uh, the, the life of our church just simply is, hasn't been long enough to approach a bank. Uh, so in a couple of years, hopefully within about two years, we'll have enough financial history that banks will entertain a long-term mortgage for us. And so part of that $150,000 is raising some money so that we don't have to borrow quite as much and that those payments will be manageable. So it's not just the renovations, that's a long-term goal. And so that $150,000, we've set a four-phase, two-year plan. And the first phase was in December to raise $25,000 to get renovations started and get moving. We bought the building at the beginning of December, immediately started working on renovating it. We hit that goal, um, and, and most of that money was raised, as you remember, from within our church. But also, we had the River Community Church here in New Ken uh, give us a little over $5,000 towards that, that goal as well. So we hit that goal. That was phase one. Phase two runs from now until Easter. And this is the most important phase of that entire two-year plan. And that is to raise $50,000 by Easter to complete the necessary renovations and to get into the building. We had a very significant um, uh, help in reaching that $50,000 goal this week. I uh, have a relationship with New Life Christian Ministries in Saxonburg. That relationship is basically that Pastor Chris Marshall, who's uh, been pastoring longer than I've been alive, uh, has uh, been very kind to me over the last two years and uh, reached out and taken me to lunch and uh, just poured into me in many ways. Uh, Pastor Chris 
has a leadership uh, training thing that he does on Wednesdays that I've been going to at their church where he basically just downloads uh, his decades of ministry wisdom and knowledge into other church leaders. And so uh, I was there this past Wednesday and he and the executive pastor, Barry Liker, asked me to stay after. And uh, then they walked me down this hallway into this, I felt like I was getting called in the principal's office. I didn't know what was going to happen, you know. Um, but they, they pulled me aside and they gave us a check for $25,000 towards our goal, which is really awesome. So uh, that's a huge help. If we're trying to raise $50,000, we're a little over halfway there with some other donations that have come in over the last few days. Now, I can't emphasize enough that the $25 donations are just as important as the $25,000. God will not work, God will not complete this process working through just a few people. It's going to take all of us. And whatever you can give is just as important. It, it can be a little bit like, okay, what's my $100 going to do when somebody just gave $25,000? Well, th that's not the, the best way to think about it. God wants us to give what we're able to give, whether that's twenty-five dollars or $25,000. So I want to encourage you uh, in whatever your ability is that God is using that. And it's just as important and just uh, as valuable to this process. So please um, consider doing uh, what you can do, but only what you can do. Don't try to uh, do beyond. Don't try to give at somebody else's capacity. Be content and be joyful to give at your capacity. All right, so that's where we're at with phase two. We're halfway there, a little over halfway there. Uh, and we've got about two months uh, to get the rest of the way there. We'll keep these projects going. Uh, it's, it's gonna, we're gonna hit a point, we're still kind of, we're still tearing things apart, but we're gonna hit a point where when we start putting things back together, some of that'll go very quickly, paint and carpet, things that'll make a very dramatic difference in the building uh, will at some point happen very quickly. So stay encouraged. We're, we're working towards a beautiful goal. It's a very important thing. I want to continue to remind us, though, uh, that we're already the church. Nothing changes other than perhaps some convenience and some new doors of ministry that will open when we get into the building. But we're the church. And God has given us the mission that we talked about last week uh, to accomplish now, not just then. And so let's continue to focus on that. All right, well, that's it by way of announcements. I'm going to take us to the Word today. I want to do something a little bit different. We're in the Gospel of John, but uh, we're actually going to look at Exodus chapter 16 for a, a good chunk of our time. So turn in your Bible to Exodus chapter 16. If you're opening your Bible, it's the second book of the Bible right after Genesis. The reason we're going to go to Genesis, or I'm sorry, Exodus 16 is because where we're at in the Gospel of John is going to point backwards to some historical events in, in the nation of Israel and the things that happened in the Old Testament. And I want to go back and look at those, you know, as we preach through a pretty good sized book in the New Testament that's going to take up a lot of time calendar wise, we're not going to have uh, an opportunity to go back to the Old Testament unless we're intentional about it. And so I thought this was a great place to, to go back to the Old Testament so that we're not just looking at the New Testament on Sundays, but the Old as well. And so there's a nice little opportunity because of the story in John 6 to take us back to Exodus 16. 
And this is the story of God providing the nation of Israel with food in the form of manna. You may be familiar with this story. I'm sure many of you are. Uh, you may not be. Uh, don't, there's no shame in not being familiar with this story. That's why we're going to go back to it. So let's look at Exodus 16 together. It is not a short passage. Uh, so, um, you know, put on your, put on your reading mentality And let's look at this together. Exodus 16, excuse me. The entire Israelite community departed from Elim and came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai. On the 15th day of the second month after they had left the land of Egypt, so that's 45 days if I understand this correctly, after they left the, the, the land of Egypt, the entire Israelite community grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt when we sat by pots of meat and ate all the bread we wanted. Instead, you brought us into the wilderness to make this whole assembly die of hunger. One second. Let me just pause there, okay? Uh, I'll break this passage up a little bit. So just so you remember the context here, if you're not familiar, the nation of Israel began with this man named Abraham. It really literally started with just one guy and his family. God came to Abraham and gave him this promise that he was going to make him into this great nation. And through Abraham, there were many descendants born and became known as, or became known as the Israelites. Um, some things transpired. I don't want to try to cover all their history because that would take up too much time and, and maybe not even be beneficial. But some things transpired and they found themselves as a nation enslaved in the land of Egypt. And they spent 400 years as slaves to the Egyptians. Free labor for the Egyptian, an entire nation of people. At the very least, tens of thousands of people. There are some estimates that they may have actually grown to be in the millions by the time of the Exodus. Uh, We can't quite know for sure exactly how large this people group was. But they're slaves in Egypt, and God sends them this deliverer. This deliverer by the name of Moses. And he tells Moses... I'm going to use you to bring my people out of slavery. And so when it says, uh, you know, about 45 days after they left the land of Egypt, that means the time that they were delivered from slavery very dramatically and miraculously. I'll talk about some of that when we get later. And so they're in the desert, in the wilderness, outside of the land of Egypt is wilderness, in between Egypt and then if you go, uh, uh, i turn so that I can th- think in the way you're thinking. If you go to the northeast around the Mediterranean Sea is going to be what becomes the, or what was the promised land already and what will become the land of Israel even in modern day Israel. In between there is just wilderness. It's essentially desert. And that's where the Israelites find themselves after escaping from Egypt. So verse 4, let's pick up there. Then the Lord said to Moses... I'm going to rain bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. This way I will test them. Keep that in mind. This way I will test them to see whether or not they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather on the other days. Verse 6, And Moses and Aaron said to the Israelites, This evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you will see the Lord's glory because he has heard your complaints about him. For who are we that you complain about us? Moses continued, the Lord will 
will give you meat to eat this evening and all the bread you want in the morning. For he has heard the complaints that you are raising against him. Who are we? Your complaints are not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses told Aaron, say to the entire Israelite community, come before the Lord, for he has heard your complaints. As Aaron was speaking to the entire Israelite community, they turned toward the wilderness, and there in a cloud, the Lord's glory appeared. The Lord spoke to Moses, I have heard the complaints of the Israelites. Tell them, at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will eat bread until you are full. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. Okay, so here's what's about to happen. Uh, they've complained, they, they, literally to the point of saying, we would rather be slaves back in Egypt than to be in this place where you've, you've brought us. At least back in Egypt, we sat around pots of meat and had food to eat. But you've brought us out here to die. That's the conclusion that they come to. So God has very specifically told them what he's about to do and, and how he's going to, to provide for them in this miraculous way. So in verse, where were we at, 17? Verse 17, it says, so the Israelites did this. Some gathered a lot, some a little. Then they measured it by quarts. The person who gathered a lot had no surplus, and the person who gathered a little had no shortage. Each gathered as much as he needed to eat. Moses said to them, no one is to let any of it remain until morning. Very specific instructions, okay? But they didn't listen to Moses. Some people left part of it until morning, and it bred worms and stank. Therefore, Moses was angry with them. So this wasn't, this wasn't a McDonald's uh, cheeseburger bun. Have you seen those experiments where there's people that have had McDonald's cheeseburgers for like 15 years now? And it hasn't grown mold. It, hasn't, it barely looks any different than the day they bought it. Okay, This stuff was only good for one day, and it would expire quite quickly. Therefore, Moses was angry with them. Verse 21, they gathered it every morning. Each gathered as much as he needed to eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much food, four quarts apiece. And all the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses. He told them, this is what the Lord has said. Tomorrow is a day of complete rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil and set aside everything left over to be kept until morning. So they set aside until morning as Moses commanded, and it didn't stink or have maggots in it. Eat it today, Moses said, because today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you won't find any in the field. For six days you will gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will be none. Yet, verse 27, notice the response of some of the Israelite people. Yet on the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they did not find any. Then the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commands and instructions? Understand that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he will give you two days worth of bread. Each of you stay where you are. No one is to leave his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. The house of Israel named the substance manna. It resembled coriander seed, was white and tasted like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Two quarts of it are to be preserved throughout your generations so that they may see the bread I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. We're almost done. Moses told Aaron, take a container and put two quarts of manna in it, then place it before the Lord to be preserved throughout your generations. 
As the Lord commanded Moses, Aaron placed it before the testimony to be preserved. The Israelites ate manna for 40 years until they came to an inhabited land. They ate manna until they reached the border of the land of Canaan. All right, this is a very important story in Israel's history. It's a story that presents a theme that's going to be picked up upon in the New Testament. Specifically, we're going to see this occur in John chapter 6 when we get to that in a few minutes. So I just wanted, I know that it took some time, but I wanted to make sure that we were all familiar enough with this story. And of course, it's always valuable to, to read God's word together. So they're in the desert. They have nothing to eat. God miraculously provides uh, food for them, but with that food comes specific instructions, and he actually even says that he's doing this to test them, okay? They fail the test. <laughs> they continually fail the test. The first, the first way they fail is he told them, don't keep any of this for the next day. Trust that on the next morning, I will provide for them again. So what are people saying whenever they kept some overnight thinking they might eat it the next day. They're saying, I don't trust that God is going to provide again the next day, just as he said. And so it, it went bad, it bred worms, and it stank. That's fun. You wake up the next morning, uh, you've disobeyed God, and your house smells awful, <laughs> or your little tent, or whatever they, they lived in, I guess. So, okay, so they've, they've uh, gone against and disobeyed those instructions, and now on the seventh day, well, actually on the sixth day, Moses says to them, very specific instructions. You're going to gather twice as much today because tomorrow there won't be any. So they've grown accustomed. Okay, the first day they're like, we better, we better get some extra because I don't know if this is going to happen again. It's kind of crazy, right? You, I mean, you wake up and there's, and I'm not really sure what it looked like. In one place it says that it was as fine as frost. Uh, in another place, it says it looked like coriander seed, which I don't know if it was ground. I don't know. I'm not sure. But it was, it was something that laid on the ground that they could gather and, from what I understand, bake bread with it. It was, it was like a grain. It was something that they could use to make bread. And when they did, of course, it wasn't a leavened bread. It was like a wafer, but it tasted like honey. That's kind of cool. It was sweet. Like, I love sweet bread. I like, I like honey buns. I like potato buns. I like, I like those kind of buns, you know. It's good stuff. So that's what God gave them to eat. But they had to trust him. This is not something that in, in a rational way you could expect to happen again or, or count on. You know, we, many of us have grown our own food at some point, whether it's a tomato plant or, or whatever. You've, you've probably grown something. If not, do it. It's kind of fun. Uh, but you, you, you kind of know what to expect. There's a logical cycle, a logical progression of things that are going to happen. And you know if you, if you do things right and something tragic doesn't happen, in, in the end of July, August, you're going to have nice, ripe red tomatoes. Well, this wasn't like that. This was totally out of their control. There was nothing they were doing to make this happen. There was, they had no control over this whatsoever. The only thing they could do is believe that God was going to do what he said he was going to do and that the next morning it would be there. Of course, that was a struggle for many of them. So they tried to keep it. And then on the sixth day, Moses says, there's not going to be anything tomorrow. So if six days, they're like, okay, I get it. This happens every morning. But on the seventh day, it's not going to happen. And many of them didn't believe. So they went out to gather and they disobeyed. And God says, how long will you disobey? How long will you fail 
to trust. Okay, so let me draw a couple of conclusions from this. The first is this, and this you'll see on your handout. God miraculously provided food to test them. This was a test. It was provision. God cared that they had something to eat. That's why he did, one of the reasons why he did this. But more significantly than that, he was doing this to test them. One of the things that we'll see is that we as human beings tend to emphasize the provision when God seems to care more about the heart. We care more about having what we need. We care more about having what we want. And God tends to care more about how our hearts are responding to him and how our, our hearts are responding to the things that we have and the things that we need. You, you know, we're, we're, in other words, we're kind of like, we're focused on the tree. God's looking at the forest. We, we have trouble getting past thinking about what's, what's right in front of us. We have trouble getting past thinking about what I need or what I want, or I need more money, or I need, I need better health, or I need this and I need that. And God cares about all of that, but what he cares about more than that is our heart condition. And we see that played out here. He not only wants them to be fed, and he does want them to be fed. He not only wants them to be fed, but he wants their hearts to be responsive to him. He wants their hearts to be obedient to them. So he miraculously provided food to test them. Verse four, let's look at it again. Then the Lord said to Moses, I'm going to rain bread from heaven for you. Provision, great. God cares that they have something to eat. He's gonna take care of this. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. This way I will test them to see whether or not they will follow my instructions. Now he already knows that they're not going to follow his instructions. But he needs them to know that. He needs them to be aware of their heart condition. What's interesting is I think we usually think of, when we think of God testing us, and maybe you don't think of that. Maybe you don't picture God as a God who tests us. Well, th this might be news to you, but he does. God tests us. He tests us to reveal, not necessarily to himself, because he already knows, but to reveal to us and perhaps even to others, the condition of our hearts. We think of God testing us through difficult times. We think of God testing us through taking something away. Maybe our finances, maybe food, maybe our safety, our security, uh, maybe our health, maybe a, a, a somebody that we cared about. We think of God testing us by removing something from us. We see here an example of God testing by actually giving blessing. He gives them something good, and by that he tests them. Sometimes tests come as provision. And God wants to see if we will obey when we have what we need. So let me put that in the form of a question. Do you only turn to God when you're desperate for something? Do you only turn to God when things are difficult? That might come most naturally to, to a lot of us. Hey, when things are going tough, when, when we're experiencing some sort of difficulty in life, we naturally think, what's God trying to teach me? Or what do I need to do? God, you have my attention. Uh, God, I, 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 we're, we're just in tune with our relationship with God when things are going dif 
uh, things are going poorly because we need him. We, we want him to intervene. We want him to change. And we recognize that God might be testing us. We recognize that God might be trying to get our attention. But when things are going well and when we have what we need and when he's provided for all of our needs, do we, do we think about him in the same way? Do we think, how is God testing my heart through this? Do we think, how, how do I need... How do I need to be obedient? In what ways is God looking for me to obey right now when I have everything that I need? So do you only turn to God when you're desperate or do you seek to obey in the good times? Do you seek to obey in the times when you have all you need? When you're full and happy and things are going well? Or do you kind of fall spiritually asleep? I know I do. It's, it's so much easier for me in times of peace, in times of things going well, to sort of fall asleep spiritually and to, to, to stop um, really seeking God with that same level of desperation. And, and some of that maybe we can't change, but, but I want to point out here that, that God doesn't always just test through the difficult times, but sometimes his provision can be a test. How will you respond when you have what you need? And then the next observation is this, that the people failed to trust God even though he had done miraculous things for them. They failed to trust God even though he had done miraculous things for them. That's a really important thing for us to think about because we always, we always put God in this position where it, it, we, say, we say or think or we believe things even if we haven't verbalized it, even if we're not aware of it. If God would do this, then I would trust him without limits. If God would do this, then I would believe in him without ever doubting. If God would do this, I would have all the faith in the world. If God would do this, then obedience would come easily. If God would, then I would. And what we see here is this incredible example of a people who had seen God do miraculous thing after miraculous thing after miraculous thing after miraculous thing. And guess what happened when he tested them? They failed. They failed to trust God even though he had done miraculous things for them. I pointed out when we were reading that this was 45 days after the exodus because of this point right here. I wanted us to have the context in our minds of this test comes just 45 days. 45 days. 45 days ago, that's about the middle of December. If God had done something significant in the middle of December in your life, how would you be responding to it right now? That's kind of the, the timeline, the context of this. Or if God did something really significant and miraculous for you today in 45 days, would you still be riding that high? Would you still be, like, you know, there's this sort of uptick in, in obedience and in faith after God does something significant in our lives where we're like, man, I can't believe God did that. You know, even in the life of our church, we're seeing God provide in miraculous ways. We're seeing God do incredible things. And, and, and that gives us momentum and it gives us some excitement like, yes, this is great. 45 days from now, will what he did in the past still be motivating us? will still be imploring us toward obedience. If we're anything like the Israelites, the answer is no. But it wasn't just 45 days ago. There were things that happened. So 45 days ago, they left the land of Egypt. We're not sure if, if you're not familiar with this. By the way, if you're not familiar with 
the story that I read from Exodus 16, if it, I would highly recommend reading the first 20 chapters of Exodus. Uh, if you get past chapter 20, you're going to notice a, a very difficult shift in the book. People uh, often start out at the beginning of the year, like, I'm going to read the Bible through this year. Uh, and the first place that you get tripped up, if you start in the beginning, if you start with Genesis 1, the first place you usually get tripped up is, is well, for me at least, the first place I get tripped up is like Exodus 21. Because up until then, it's all narrative. It's all stories. It's about people and about things happening. And then that second half of Exodus, when it's just talking about the measurements of the temple and how things are supposed to be put together and all that, and I'm like, man, what happened? Like, somebody kill somebody. Some, somebody sleep with somebody that you're not supposed to sleep. Like, let's get what happened. There was all this crazy stuff happening, and you had me, and now we're, like, talking about how to build something that I'm never going to build, you know? And so just be aware of that as you as you you get into Exodus but the first chapter uh first 20 chapters of Exodus is a fantastic story very important story to understand biblically and so I, I recommend reading it but before they left Egypt there was what's known as the 10 plagues when the Israelite when God was preparing the Israelites to come out of Egypt and he's getting ready to deliver them miraculously he brought a series of 10 plagues on the land of Egypt. And I'm, I'm not sure how long that period lasted. I don't know if somebody's figured that out. I don't know if there's just information that I don't have. Um, but it seems to have lasted a while. It seemed to have been going on for a while. But you had these 10 miraculous plagues. The Nile River was turned into blood. That's pretty miraculous, pretty fantastic. Um, the land of Egypt was covered with frogs. That's crazy. You know, like the, just frogs everywhere. It was a problem. And, and, and I mean, imagine like when they all died and the, the, the mess and the stank that would have been there. Gnats, the dust, it's a, the Bible says the dust turned to gnats and the land was just full of gnats. And then there's the plague of flies, the plague where the livestock of the Egyptians was killed, the plague of boils, the plague of hell, the plague of locusts, the plague of darkness, where for three days the land was completely dark. And this is before electricity. Obviously, they, had, they would have you know, oil burning lamps or something of, of that nature, but certainly not the convenience of modern electricity. And then the final plague, the plague of the firstborn, and that was what became known as the Passover, where God said, I'm going to go through the land of Egypt, I'm going to strike down the firstborn of every household except for the households of the Israelites who obey my specific commands to sacrifice, long story short, sacrifice a Passover lamb, take the blood of that Passover lamb, paint it on the doorposts of your house to signify this is a house that is obeying the Lord, eat the Passover, and then he miraculously takes the Israelites out of the land of Egypt they, uh, the, and the Egyptians had given them permission to leave at this point. They were desperate for the Israelites to leave. And so they give them permission to leave. They actually sent them off with parting gifts. They sent them out with great wealth. And so the Israelites leave. Pharaoh, as he had done every other time, had a change of heart. God, God allowed his heart to be hardened. And he pursued them with the Egyptian army. And so you have this band of slaves not trained uh, to fight any kind of battle. And the Egyptian army, perhaps uh, the, the, the most lethal army on the planet at that time, certainly up there, pursuing these slaves wandering through the desert now. 
And there's this another miraculous event where they come to the Red Sea and they've got the sea in front of them and there's nowhere they can go. And behind them is the Egyptian army. And what does God do? Again, he miraculously intervenes and he parts the Red Sea. You're almost certainly familiar with this story. Again, it's okay if you aren't. Where, where Moses um, parts the Red Sea, the Israelites cross over on dry ground and as the Egyptian army pursues them, through this parted sea, the water consumes them and wipes out the Egyptian army. Like, if you were a part of that, you're not going to forget that, right? If you're a part of that, that's going to leave and it's going to leave its imprint on you. You're going to think about that. You're going to realize this God is a God of power. This God is a God who can do anything. This God, and, and this God is on our side. He's fighting for us. He is our God. He's here to care for us. What do we have to be afraid of? What, what is it that could possi possibly um, take us out or defeat us? This powerful God is on our side. This is just like a, less than 45 days ago. Okay? And then right before this event, there's another miraculous event and these are just the ones that are recorded. We don't know what might else have happened. I'm not saying there were other things. We just don't know. Um, out in the desert, they had nowhere to drink. You have this whole nation of people. Like I said, at the very least, tens of thousands of people, maybe hundreds of thousands, or even a couple of million people by some estimates. You have all these people out in the, in the wilderness. They have nothing to drink. They come to this place where there's water, and they're like, great, we can get a drink. And they go to drink the water, and it's so bitter that they can't even drink it. It's not drinkable water. And so God miraculously turns the, the bitter water into drinking water just before the man. So my, my point in recounting all of that is they have had just incredible experiences with God saying things and doing things on their behalf that should have had them ready to do anything he asked. They should have been in this place where they're like, hey, whatever God, if, if he tells me to stand on my head and spit nickels, I'm in. It's time, like, I'll do anything, right? And what happens? They failed to trust God, even though he had done miraculous things for them. Let's look at verse 2. The entire Israelite community grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. This is incredible. They grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt, when we sat by pots of meat and ate all the bread we wanted. Instead, you brought us into this wilderness to make this whole assembly die of hunger. You brought us out here to die is going to become a common refrain among the Israelites, especially in the next couple of chapters, but really for the next 40 years. They continue to doubt God. Like, you just brought us out here to die. After everything God has done, all they can think of is, you just brought us out here to die. Now, I mean, they're thirsty and hungry, and they don't have anywhere to stay. I, I'm not saying it's, I don't understand. I'm just saying, look at what everything that God has. The point is, miracles don't necessarily lead to trust or obedience. That's the point I want to make. We're always like, if God would, then I would. That's not necessarily true. God intervening in your life in some miraculous way would not necessarily make you more obedient or more trusting. 
It's just not the way it works. It's the way we think it works. It's the way we are convinced it works. I mean, most of us would die saying, no, that's the way it works. <laughs> if God would, then I would. But the Bible is a, a living example. That's not the way it works. Miracles don't necessarily need to lead to trust or obedience. Let me give you a couple more examples uh, of their attitude here. Verse 19, Moses said to them, no one is to let any of it remain until morning. But they didn't listen to Moses. Some people left part of it until morning and it bred worms and stank. Therefore, Moses was angry with them. They won't obey. Verse 26, for six days you will gather it. But on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will be none. Yet on the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they did not find any. They won't listen. Verse 28, then the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commands and instructions Understand that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he will give you two days worth of bread. Each of you stay where you are. No one is to leave his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Okay, so some of them finally get it, right? Miracles don't necessarily lead to trust or obedience. The reason I'm I'm picking particular observations from this story, because when we get into John chapter 6, which is where we're going now, Um, It's going to take us, John chapter 6, there's no easy breaking point in John chapter 6. It's a long chapter. Uh, It's actually going to take me three weeks to get us through John chapter 6. So today we're we're not going to get everywhere we need to get to. But what we're talking about today is going to be important for some of the things that we're going to hear and and look at and learn in John chapter 6. Because we're going to see a similar pattern. We're going to see miracles don't necessarily lead to trust or obedience. Okay, so we have, to, we have to get this down. Make sure we understand this. The people failed to trust God, even though he had done miraculous things for them. God miraculously provided food to test them. We're going to see those things repeated now in the New Testament. So let's turn to John chapter 6. I have a picture, by the way. Uh, I, don't, I don't do this kind of thing often, I guess, um, and I don't think it'll show up online. But there's a picture of the Sea of, of Galilee. Go ahead and throw that up. So if you go to the land of Israel, and so, it may be harder to see in the back, but uh, hopefully this is a little bit helpful. Uh, I, one of the th- well, I had the opportunity to go to Israel a couple years ago. One of the things I loved about that opportunity was it just gave me visuals for as I read the Bible. So when I hear about Jesus doing ministry in the Sea of Galilee, this is like the picture that I have in my head. This is the type of thing that you see. Now, this is just a Google image that I pulled off, but I, I saw this very thing. I saw this, this landscape and this, um, this, this setting. And so you have this sea that's sort of surrounded by these grassy, hilly areas like this. And this is, if you think of like Jesus preaching the Sermon on the Mount, picture like a hillside like this where he had a, where he'd a stood on the hillside and there had been a large crowd of people in front of him on the hillside. There's actually, um, if you ever have the chance to go there, you'll see every, there's all these little um, sites where uh, the church has said, this is where that actually happened. So there's actually like uh, a chapel or some sort of church built where they think the Sermon on the Mount happened. Some of that has some historical evidence to back it up. Some of it, I think, is somebody was just like, hey, I own this land. I probably could make a lot of money if I say this is where Jesus did this. I don't know. Um, but nonetheless, uh, it's, it's really uh, an interesting and beautiful place. And so 
when we read about the Sea of Galilee, which we're getting ready to do, I just wanted you to have some imagery in your head. We're going to talk about the disciples getting on the boat and going across the sea. We're going to talk about people uh, coming after Jesus. And obviously it's much more developed today, but there were towns all, you know, uh, uh, different various places around the Sea of Galilee, towns of significant people because it was, a, it was a good place to live. Okay, so let's look at John chapter 6 together, and this is what we're going to focus on the next couple of weeks. I'll have to move quickly. Let me, let me just get into reading. After this, Jesus crossed the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias. It's another name for the Sea of Galilee. A huge crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was performing by healing the sick. Jesus went up on a mountain and sat down there with his disciples. Now the Passover, a Jewish festival, was near. So when Jesus looked up and noticed a huge crowd, take note of that. This is the time of the Passover, which is when the Israelites, this is now 1,500 years after the story of Exodus 16. The time of Passover is when the Israelites annually celebrated and remembered what God did in bringing the Israelites out of Egypt and out of slavery. Now, the time of Passover, a Jewish festival is near. So when Jesus looked up and noticed a huge crowd coming toward him, he asked Philip, where will we buy bread so that these people can eat? What happens in verse 6? It says, he asked this to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. Philip answered, 200 denarii worth of bread wouldn't be enough for each of them to have a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, so they sat down. The men numbered about 5,000. So that puts estimates of the total crowd at like fifteen to 20,000 or more. If the men numbered 5,000, there was obviously significantly more than that. Then Jesus took the loaves, and after giving thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also with the fish, as much as they wanted. When they were full, he told his disciples, collect the leftovers so that nothing is wasted. So they collected them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces from the five barley loaves that were left over by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign he had done, they said, this truly is the prophet who is to come into the world. Therefore, when Jesus realized that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Okay, you can probably start to pick up on why Exodus 16 is significant. First of all, the Passover is mentioned, but there are some other parallels here. Let me give you, um, I just want to make one observation and then one application, okay? The observation is this, the same God who provided for and tested the Israelites in Moses' day is providing for and testing them again. It's not just about their need to eat. It's about their need to be in relationship with their creator, okay? It's not just about the food. Food is significant, but what is most important is their hearts. So he's he provided for and tested them in Moses' day. He's providing for and testing them again. You see some parallels here. You have a large crowd of hungry people with nowhere to get food. All right, they're, they're out on this hillside. Um, there's no, there's no um, community market or Giant Eagle or anything like that. There are no fast food restaurants. Um, that They need food, and it's not going to come easily. Uh, you have doubt from those who have already seen miracles. None of, none of the disciples seem to think this is, situation has any positive or possible outcome that where, where this need is met. Like they're, they're like, 
what do you want us to do, Jesus? Like if we had a year's worth of wages, 200 denarii is almost a year's worth. If we had a year's worth of wages, we wouldn't be able to buy enough food for a few of these uh, people to eat, right? So they understand the problem. And one of them speaks up and says, well, we got this kid with, you know, a couple loaves of bread and a couple of fish, but what are we going to do with that? We've got thousands of people, like 20,000 people. God, or Jesus, like, what, what, what are you thinking here? So we see this doubt from those who have already seen miracles. They've already seen Jesus do miraculous things. Then we have the miraculous provision. He has them disperse the food, and it turns out that this little boy's lunch that he packed, which is, you know, like he's got like his little Lunchables over here in his high C box, and they start passing it around, and everybody gets filled up. Everybody has enough to eat. Not only do they have enough to eat, but they, they collect 12 basketfuls of leftovers. They didn't start with 12 basketfuls. This is a miracle. This is supernatural. This is God doing something that is not possible in our world. He's intervening in a miraculous way, and we see that it's a test. He does this to test them. What the rest of the uh, chapter 6 is going to be about is not about how God can feed you when you're hungry. What the rest of chapter 6 is going to be about is that even when people see miracles, they don't tend to trust and obey God. That's going to be the story of the rest of chapter 6. But there will be a few. There will be a few, and that's how the chapter ends, with the few who do believe and do trust and obey. Which category do you want to be in? Do you want to be among the masses who, even though they see miraculous things, walk away unchanged, walk away disobedient, walk away not believing or trusting, Walk away with, without any sig significant connection to the one who did the miracles, or do you want to be among the few? I love, I love the end of the chapter. Spoiler alert, okay? I love the end of the chapter. Everybody has left Jesus, and he looks at his disciples, presumably the 12, and he says, what about you guys? Do you want to leave too? I'm not going to tell you why they left. We'll read it together, and you can read ahead, of course. Um, but everybody leaves Jesus. This big, massive crowd that sees these miracles leave Jesus. And he looks at the 12 and he says, what about you guys? You want to leave too? And they say, where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. That's what this is about. It's about trusting and obeying. It's about trusting and obeying and the relationship between the two. If those Israelites back in the desert in the wilderness, 1,500 years before this, 3,500 years from where we're at, had they trusted him, they wouldn't have tried to keep, they would have obeyed. Had they trusted him, they would have disposed of their leftovers at the end of the day like he told them to because they would, they would have trusted that the next morning they were going to get up and it was going to be there again. And then on the seventh day, they wouldn't have gone out to gather because they would have trusted that what they had left over from yesterday was still going to be enough for today. If they trusted, they would obey. If you trust, you will obey. <laughs> That's the point, right? The point for us today is to trust and obey. That's the application. Let me end with this. Our application to this story, I wanted to set the scene 
for the next couple of weeks. I wanted to get into Exodus 16, do a little bit of Old Testament history and understand the context of what's happening. I wanted us to read the beginning of, of John 6 and understand that Jesus had done this miracle because all of that is context for the rest of chapter 6. And, but the application for us today and this week is to trust and obey. When you're empty and in need, trust and obey. When you are full and have everything you need, trust and obey. If you trust him, you will obey him. If you don't trust him, obedience is almost impossible. What do we need to learn from the miraculous things that God did in, in the wilderness in the Old Testament? What do we need to learn about the miraculous things that Jesus does in the wilderness in the New Testament is that he can be trusted. And because he can be trusted, he must be obeyed. We must be willing to trust in Jesus. And when we trust him, we must obey him. We must do the things that he tells us to do. That's how we prove our trust. This is why James, this, there's this argument in the New Testament, among people who read the New Testament, it's not an argument in the New Testament, there's this argument among people who read the New Testament that James and Paul contradict each other because Paul says salvation is by faith alone and not by works. But James says, but if you have faith, show me your faith by your works. James is just pointing to the relationship between faith and obedience. If you believe, you will obey. If you believe, it will produce works in your life. And that's what I'm calling us to, to trust and obey. And to see the relationship of those two things that they have with, with one another. How this week do you need to trust him and obey him? How this week is he calling you? Whether you're in a desperate situation where you don't see any way out, or whether you're like, life's good. I don't need anything right now. Got my, got my stimmy check. I got everything I need, you know. Trust and obey. In every situation, trust and obey. Let's pray. I want to ask the worship team to come up and get ready to lead us in worship. Father, I thank you. You can be trusted and you must be obeyed. You know what is best for us. Not We don't know. We don't have this thing figured out. Every time we think we do, we just make a mess. We're out, we're out here trying to make today's manna last tomorrow. And, and then we're out here on when we're not supposed to be looking for manna and trying to gather. When, when you told us not, you, you, you told us the way of life. You told us how to obey. And, and we just constantly think we know better. We constantly think, ah, now I'm going to do this my way. And, 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 and just like the Israelites found out, when you do that, you wake up, things kind of stink. Really, the only way forward is to trust and obey. As we're going to see as we go through John 6 together, those who, who didn't, they missed out. They missed out on the gospel. They missed out on the kingdom. They missed out on you. They didn't gain you. But the few, the few who, were, who, who did trust and were willing to obey, their gift was eternal life. God help us to trust and obey. And if there's anybody here today who wants to begin trusting you, by trusting in Jesus for salvation, believing that what he did on the cross was payment for their sins, I pray, God, that you would just come into their lives in a miraculous way and show them your unending love for them. 
and that for this reason you created them and brought them here today so that they could believe and have eternal life. We love you and we thank you. Let us now worship you with hearts that trust you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, as we worship, first of all, I want to thank, uh, 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 first of all, Greg for raising up and, and turning things over and being willing to sit aside today and let Dana and the worship team lead. Uh, I want to thank these guys for stepping up. They're all kind of playing different roles today, and it's, it's great having them uh, to, to lead. But as we worship, we'll receive the offering. And so if you came today wanting to worship through giving, please prepare your offering. If you're not doing that today, no big deal. But let's stand together and let's worship the God who, who gave us life and who brought us.